How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. The word of the Lord. As usual, our faithful sister Sylvia has copies of the manuscript. If you would like one, just get her attention when she goes by, however imperfect it might be. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, we are in the middle of a summer series called Praying the Psalms. One of the interesting things about Psalm 36, though, is that it doesn't really describe itself as a prayer, and in many ways it doesn't seem very prayerful. Psalm 36 describes itself as a message from God concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. Parts of this psalm clearly are prayer. They're words addressed to God reverently and needfully, humbly. But how do we connect those words of humble prayer to the hard words about and the judgmental words about bad people that come at the beginning of and the end of Psalm 36. Let's look into that. The first part of Psalm 36 is basically a relentless description of wicked people and their wicked ways. Here's what they're like. It's pretty clear. And it seems pretty accurate. But why is this necessary? Isn't it already obvious what evil people are like? Do we need a word from the Lord on that? Well, actually, we probably do. We can still, certainly, even in our fallenness, identify evil in the more extreme cases. But at some point... In our fallen nature and in our fallen cultures, our moral vision tends to get blurry. We know certainly that it's evil when an angry young man aims an assault rifle at innocent people because they're from a different race or language or culture. But we tolerate it, and sometimes Christian citizens defend it when our highest leaders aim hateful words at those same people. For those same reasons. Or we recognize the face of evil when someone commits child abuse or child neglect. We don't lose that much sleep over the millions and millions of unborn American children killed by abortion year in and year out. Now, I don't want to rant and get up on a political stump, but I do want to point out that individually and collectively, we don't always see the line between good and evil very clearly. And more than that, I want to argue, based on Psalm 36, that evil has a kind of momentum 
and gravity. It spreads and it deepens. It captures cultures and it captures hearts and minds and imaginations. Psalm 36 was written in part to analyze the way that happens on the most basic, the most fundamental level, the level of one human life, one human heart and mind and will and soul. So for starters, let's follow the path that Psalm 36 traces out for us. There are seven lines carefully designed at the beginning of this psalm and constructed and put together to take us on a journey into the heart of darkness. The journey starts with one critical deficiency, the absence of a necessary thing. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, this is the logical place to start. The fundamental problem here lies with the evil person's way of looking at the world. What an evil person sees, and especially what an evil person declines or neglects or fails to see. Note the emphasis on these first two, in this first couplet, these first two lines after an oracle is in my heart, on the eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Evil often takes hold when an evil person has not cultivated an awareness of God's presence in the world, of God's moral claim on the world and on every person in the world, on the self. God expects everyone and requires everyone to be good. But God gives everyone a lot of freedom to act. God created us to be free moral agents. And that means God doesn't restrain every evil inclination. God doesn't micromanage our behavior. That allows us to give free reign to some of the dark things in our fallen hearts. Especially if we don't fear God. Or to explore some of the dark things in this fallen world. It's like we forget to look up and see that God is watching us, and it starts young. Parents who are raising children, cultivating the fear of the Lord is one of the most important things that God has entrusted to you. But it starts young. I remember something that I did when I was maybe eight or nine years old, and I was already the victim of evil. I had learned some pretty bad words from the older kids in my neighborhood. I didn't put up too much resistance, but I was the victim of the evil in their hearts spreading to me. But I became a carrier of that badness. My youngest brother at the time, Steve, was just learning to talk. And one day, when my mom was out in the yard, I decided to teach my little brother one of those bad words while he sat there in his high chair going, Mama, Dada. And I said, Steve, try this one. I wouldn't have done this if my mom was there. And because she wasn't there, this evil in my heart boiled out of my heart, and I was actually sitting there coaching his pronunciation because he couldn't quite say the word right. And then, I don't know, I heard something. I saw something out of the corner of my eye, and I looked up, and there was my mom, standing in the doorway with a face that would have put the fear of God into anyone. And I don't think I have ever been so cut 
to the heart. I had no defense. I tried, but no, I was just doing a really bad thing. It was one of the worst days of my life. It's one of the things that to this day I'm still ashamed of, and I'm amazed that I did it. And I think that's what it's like when you have no fear of God. You just have the capacity, the opportunity to let the evil in your heart that's already there boil out. You let yourself go. The counterpart, and the next line addresses this, the counterpart of this defective way of looking at and understanding the world and not seeing the God who rules the world is a defective way of seeing yourself. Again, the eyes. They're in their own eyes. They flatter themselves so much that they do not detect or hate their own sin. They become proud. They become comfortable with their darkness. They turn a blind eye to their faults. And I think we all know what that's like too. And the result of that, as it progresses, of the defective way of understanding the world and of understanding yourself inaccurately, that doesn't just stay inside of you. That forms your behavior, that forms your speech, that forms your speech, your, your thinking, and it spills out into the world, and it hurts other people. You teach other people your bad words and your bad ideas. Your speech spreads your moral confusion to the people around you like a disease. You use words deceptively to hide your real intentions. You start to redefine reality. You start to call good evil and evil good. And think, just think, just think how much harm actually happens because of words. Never say that's just words. Words affect the world. Words affect the people who act in the world. Words corrupt. Number four, they fail to act wisely or do good. That's such a bland statement in English. They fail to act wisely or do good. It's actually much sharper than that in the Hebrew. I think this is a really important line. And one of the things, if you look at the bulletin, you see I'm trying to identify some of the structural things in this psalm without turning this, this sermon into a, a lecture on the structure of the psalm. But in Hebrew literature, the climax or the punchline often comes in the middle. This line, verse 4, or, or the fourth one that I have put the letter D by, they have failed to act wisely or do, do good, comes in the middle of seven statements, three lines before that, three lines after that. And I think in a lot of ways, this is a punchline. This shows the result of the descent into evil that I'm describing. They fail to act wisely. That Hebrew word, shakal, sort of connects behavior that is wise in a practical sense to the prosperity and success that result from morally correct behavior. It's what the book of Proverbs is largely about. Enjoying a blessed and prosperous life because you live life the right way, because you do the right things. And when you don't fear God, and when you're all puffed up with a sense of how great you are, and when you lie to yourself, and you lie to others, sooner or later, that will catch up to you, and that will surround you with results. You will not ultimately prosper. You might prosper by some definitions. You might get rich. You might become powerful. You might 
have all the pleasures you desire. But in the end, you will not prosper. Probably not even in this world. And certainly not when the God you forgot to fear judges you at the end of your life. The end of this oracle is a reiteration of that. The end of this psalm. See how the evildoers lie fallen. Thrown down and not able to rise. One of the things the psalms often do is they tell the the, the people who are struggling with their own efforts to be good and see the bad people prospering, they, they say, look what's going to happen to them in the end. And that's one of the things this psalm does. But let's go back to that, that middle line, D. They, have, they fail to act wisely, and they also fail to do good. Not only do evil people not prosper in their own living, but they also don't produce good as we were created to. That's one of the ways in which we bear God's image, by, by blessing and doing good to the people around us. When you're bad, when you're wicked, when you're evil, when your heart is this corrupted, you don't produce good in the lives of others or in the world. The end result of evil can only be evil. No good comes from an evil person or an evil heart. A bad tree, says our Lord, cannot produce good fruit. The last three lines... Just continue the, preparation, the, 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 the progression and document the way evil captures a person's imagination totally. Even on their beds, they plot evil. You ever, you ever wake up in the night thinking about stuff? And does it ever happen that the stuff you wake up thinking about isn't really good stuff? That you've been kind of nursing something unwholesome in your heart? They commit themselves to a sinful course, literally to a way that is not good. You ever set yourself on a course and that little pang of conscience says, don't do that, but then you say, no, I've already made up my mind. I'm doing it. All the lines in this part of the psalm come in pairs. I hope you can see that in the way I've laid it out, except for the last line, the one at the end, the one I've given letter G, is it doesn't stand in relation, I think, to any single other line, but as a summary and sort of counterpart to all the other lines, they do not reject what is wrong. The person's, think of what this is really saying, the person's moral faculty has become completely blind and defective. Their conscience is seared doesn't even work anymore. The last line of defense that God has given us against evil has fallen. They can no longer say, I'm I'm just not going to do that because it's wrong. They can't even see that a thing is wrong. They've crossed into the land of darkness enough times that they have become citizens of that dark place. And that's where they are at home. Well, this is a pretty grim picture but why did God's inspired psalmist see a need to paint this picture? Why did God send this word to us? Well, it's not, I hope that word not comes clearly in my manuscript. I had to write it in by hand. It is not so that we can condemn evil in others. It might look that way in this psalm. It's actually so that we can reject it in our own lives. The right response to this description of evil, this 
message from God about sinfulness is not to pray like the Pharisee in the parable Jesus told as an example of how not to pray. Lord, I thank you that I am not like those other people. The right response is more like the way the disciples responded when Jesus, out of the blue, said, one of you is going to betray me. And what did they all say? Is it I, Lord? We don't talk that way anymore. Is it me? Am I the one you're talking about? Because they all knew what their hearts were capable of. This psalm is not meant to generate self-righteousness. It's meant to prompt self-examination. Is there a proper fear of God before my eyes? Do I flatter myself too much to hate or even see my own sin? Every Christian leader should ask this question, I don't know, once a week, once a day, once an hour, because you get so confident that you're doing the Lord's work that that justifies almost anything that you could think up. Are my words evil and deceitful? And that one, you've got to look into pretty carefully because deception of others often starts with self-deception. It's pretty hard to see if you're telling the truth, if you've already told yourself lies. Is my life really making me thrive spiritually and in every other way? Is it wholesome? Is it enhancing my, and deepening my relationship with God? Are my desires focused on the right things? Is my life and my way of living producing goodness in the people around me and in the world around me? What do I dwell on when I'm lying on my bed or when I wake up in the morning or when I find myself daydreaming in the afternoon? Have I committed myself no turning back to a way that is not good? Well, God's just going to have to bless this. Do I reject what is wrong? Or am I letting evil sink such deep roots into my heart and my imagination that I can't even tell the difference from good and evil? But this psalm isn't just negative. It doesn't just aim to push us away from evil. Guilt is good for that, pushing us away from bad things. But what draws us to good things? You can't just reject evil. You have to cultivate what is just and holy and good and right. Like Paul's advice in Philippians 4, whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, let your mind meditate on these things. That's why this psalm paints in such stark contrast another vivid picture, a picture not of a wicked person who is the source of some evil in the world, but the picture of a holy and righteous and loving God who is the source of all good in the world. The words are as brilliant as the sun emerging from behind the clouds on a dark day. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies, like as high as it can go. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice is like the great deep. You poetry fans can see the, the kind of poetic devices in there. And those of you who have a deaf ear to poetry aren't going to hear it if, even if I explain it to you. But this is, this is such beautiful and powerful language. P 
painting a picture of the splendor of God's, and, uh, of God's majesty. And, and this time I put the Hebrew words on the right, not just so much to show the structure of the psalm, though it does that, but to point out the way that this psalm focuses on God's most central and splendid characteristics, words that come up over and over and over next to the Lord's name. God's steadfast love, chesed. God's faithfulness, emunah, which are often paired with each other, almost like God's signature, like God's first and last name. And then God's righteousness, tzedakah, and God's justice, mishpat, which are also often paired with each other. And these things together not only define the majesty of the holy God who created all things. But they're the center of this psalm, and they produce goodness as well. We'll get to that, and let's get to it now. You may notice that there are seven, I've identified seven lines leading up to these central lines about God, four lines. I've numbered those A through G. And then there are seven more lines also numbered A through G, that come after this four-square description of God's goodness and greatness. And I, just a little footnote, I couldn't quite decide if the, the one that I numbered A in verse 6 belongs to that middle part or to the following part. It's a little detail. I decided to go with the structure that I did because if you'll notice, then the last three full stanzas all start with a line that contains the most important phrase in this psalm. Your love. Your chesed. Chasdecha. But either way, the symmetry of this psalm is pretty clear. In the first group of seven lines, as I've already pointed out, the one about wicked people focuses not just on their character, but on what their character produces. Do you see how the seven lines that come after verses 5 and 6, also focus on what God's loving, faithful, righteous, and just character produces. This is the result of God's being. It's like a symphony of praise and a picture of shalom, of wholeness and wholesomeness. You, Lord, preserve both human beings and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from your river of delights. Again, some nice poet, poetical things going on there. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light, we see light. What a great hymn of praise to God. And finally, we come to the part of the psalm that is actually intercessory prayer, that asks God to do something. These are the actual petitions in Psalm 36, and we can take them on our lips to continue your love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. I want to focus on verse 10, the first part of that petition before the holy, loving, faithful, just, and righteous God. Obviously, this psalm teaches us to pray that God will protect us from evil people. Verse 11. 
May the foot of the proud not come against me. And it's a lot like the Lord's Prayer, right? Lead us not into temptation or a time of testing, but deliver us from the evil one. But those first two lines, continue your love to those who know you. What do they mean? How deep do they go? I want to suggest that they don't just mean something like this. Please keep on loving us, Lord. Please let us benefit from your righteousness. Certainly they include that idea. But the Hebrew verb that is translated continue means something like to draw something out or to extend it or to make it longer and larger. When we pray according to this oracle, this divine word that turns out not to be just about the sinfulness of the wicked, but also about the righteousness and goodness of God, then maybe we should be asking not just to benefit from God's love and righteousness, but that we would imitate and embody God's love and righteousness, these characteristics that are rooted in God's own being, that we would no longer be carriers of evil in a broken world, but that we would become carriers of goodness, that God's holy wholesomeness would fill us and flow from us. Last week, I said that when we pray a psalm deeply, it becomes a vehicle that carries us into God's presence. Maybe I can add something new to recognize the complexity of what prayer is and how the psalms pray and teach us to pray. A psalm can also be an instrument meant to make us, that actually does make us more fit to be in the presence of God. It, just doesn't, it doesn't just take us there. It makes us belong there. This psalm isn't just meant to deepen our connection to God. It's also meant to deepen our resemblance to God. It's intended to guide us and shape us, to teach us and to form us. And in large part, that happens through the, the, the combination of meditation and reflection on the contents of God's word, like the first part of this psalm, the teaching it gives us, and then praying in a way that responds to it and applies it to our own walk with God. And the best way that I can think of to do that is just kind of what we did last week, to end by praying the actual words of this psalm. And I'd like us to start in verse 5. And we'll just do it line by line. I'll cue and you complete the line. And we'll do this slowly and prayerfully until we come to the end. And I think sometimes you're going to be cueing me and, I'm, and that's fine. Your love, O oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And you give them drink from your river of delights. In your light, we see light. Your righteousness to the upright 
in heart. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Thrown down, not able to rise. This is the word of the Lord.